Hello, everyone. It's another edition of the TetraCast. We've got the whole regular crew here today. I'm your host, Brian Vitali, and we've got George Foster. Hello, everyone. We've got Adam Vitali. Hey, guys. And James Galizio. Howdy, folks. So we've got the core four, whatever you want to call us. We're all here. We're all back. Talk about RPGs. Core four. I like that. That's cool. Yeah, I think that's been used in a lot of more interesting ways and in other like sports or things like that. But here we go. We're using it here because who's going to stop us? So it's been a weird week. There's not really been any like major highlights of announced news, but there's been like some significant news in terms of some games releasing soon or some games that are no longer going to be releasing any other new content soon. We'll get into it. It's it's been like an there's a there's a lot of news, but it's a lot of it's kind of of a tip you know atypical variety from what we're uh, used to covering here. Uh, so we'll just go right into it with what we normally do, and that's what we've been playing. So um, I don't know if maybe uh, James should go first because he's kind of teased about something he hasn't been able to talk about for the last few weeks, but now he can. So I think that's appropriate if you take it you know from the jump. Yep. So, um, first off, I'll just say that we pushed a review for Robotics Notes Elite. So, um, yeah, I've been playing through the uh, two-for-one pack, uh, which is Robotics Notes and then the sequel, Robotics Notes Dash. Um, it's a science, It's a visual novel in the Science Adventure series. That, well, I'm not sure if Colin... Well, Colin hasn't really talked about it that much whenever he's been on the podcast, but um, definitely a series that uh, I'm into and what's the best way to put it so, so explain to this explain to this like i'm five i know that this is related to or i think i know that this is related to steinsgate that's that's kind of all i know yeah so robotics notes and steinsgate are both part of the same shared universe um people like to joke that it's the semicolon universe because all the games in like the science adventure series have like a semicolon between like the two halves of the title which is a little weird. But, it, it, yeah. it checks out. But, um, yeah, so... I guess at this point, there's, like, three kind of sub-series within Science Adventure. There's um, the Chaos um, series, which only one of those games has been localized, that being uh, Chaos Child, which is technically the second one in that sub-series. Then there's the Steins Gate sub-series, which has Steins Gate, Steins Gate Zero, and then, like, a couple of fan discs and spinoffs and whatnot. And then there's Robotics Notes. And up until now, the West has only had Steinsgate games and Chaos Child. So the fact that we're finally getting Robotics Notes means that now I, I'm pretty sure every, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure at this point, every like canon science adventure story besides the very first one chaos head is now localized or will be um by the time this uh officially comes out but it's um really nice to see because the for the longest time it seemed like uh, the series was doomed to be stuck in uh, japan except for science gate so it's it's nice to see over time that it started to uh make its way over here like in full and then um, what is Dash? Dash is the, is the second game in the Robotics Notes sub Yeah, um, it's a bit more than that. So Robotics Notes itself has a character from Steinsgate in it, 
even though it's, I'd say for the most part, it's completely standalone. I said in my review, you can start like with reading robotics notes. You don't need to have read any of the other VMs in order to uh, kind of get into it. But um, so I'm still writing up my Dash review. I'm getting, I'm going to get it out before launch. But uh, Dash is a bit different in the sense that it's, it's a sequel to robotics notes but it way more heavily ties into the rest of the science and venture universe. Um, even to the point that the subtitle dash actually, and by the way, I actually kind of messed up the um, capitalization on the document, but the dash actually stands for Daru, the super hacker, which is a character. I was going to ask like, what is dash? And if people who can't see it, it's capital D lowercase a capital S capital H say it again, what it stands for. Uh, Daru, the super hacker. So um, he's obviously a character from Gate. So I would definitely say at an absolute minimum, you probably shouldn't read Robotics Notes Dash unless you've read the Gate visual novels. Because <laughs> there's some pretty heavy... Uh, rec- well, it's not even just references. It's just the fact that one of the main characters is from Gate, and there's like way less... Um, pretense on the idea that somebody reading Dash is going to maybe only have read, like, be reading robotics notes or has only read robotics notes. So it's a bit interesting in that sense. Uh, I guess one thing that sets these two VNs apart from some of their contemporaries, especially in the Science Adventure series, is that, well, two things, I'd say. One, both the regular robotics notes, or, or I guess elite in this case, so there's not really that much difference between the two. Unlike Steinsgate versus Steinsgate Elite, Robotics Note Elite is the same visual novel and the same like presentation as the original Robotics Notes. So it's not like a weird anime amalgamation or whatnot. It's just a polished version of the original, so I'm just going to call it Robotics Notes. But um, one thing that the Robotics Notes subseries does that's kind of different for VNs in general, and especially for Science Adventure, is that so all of the character art, except within specific CGs, is going to be 3D models, and it's going to be animated that way. And you have access to two things um, at, pre- at, almost, at, at almost all times. You've got this totally not Twitter app. see stuff that's going on with specific characters and what's going on in the game. The uh, original Robotics Notes, um, the first one, the one that we had the review up for, a lot of the game's uh, root system actually um, directly ties into using that Twitter knockoff in order to unlock those routes. And then the other thing is you have access to this like, augmented reality app in-game that you can use to scan the environment to find these like geotags that explain things about like characters, places, and whatnot, and stuff like that. That even ties into some sections of the game where you actually have to scan environments for these um, things called Kimijima reports in order to progress. So if you have read my review, then you probably already know how I feel about some of that. But if you haven't, I'll just say that while it's a neat idea on paper, I feel like it really messes up the plot and, well, the pacing of the plot in both cases. Uh, Colin disagrees with me on this, but my main bugbear is the fact that, especially when it comes to the route system, usually when you have different routes in visual novels, they are more what-ifs, and they're not canon. 
And generally they all kind of branch off from a specific point and then there's like a true route and there you go. With robotics notes, it's a bit different in the sense that all of the routes are canon and all of them you have to do in chronological order, which wouldn't be so much a problem in and of itself, except for one major thing. Uh, that being that uh, you have to, uh, like, when you unlock a route, and then once you've re read that route, it'll bump you all the way back to the title menu, which means that even though these routes are totally linear, they're, to they're like one after the other, you have to go back and unlock the next route, rereading stuff that you already read, and it just... So, so it doesn't take you to the branching point. It takes you significantly before the branching point, and you got to you, you got to work your way back to it. Yeah, unless you specifically like look up a guide and then make sure to hit almost all of the triggers for every character, and then just save right before the branching point. Well, even then, you're still going to have to like reload. It's like, why do that if the if the story is completely linear? Otherwise, it just absolutely butchers the pacing and i'm not a big fan of it so my my stupid brain is trying to come up with like a comparison point so what i'm thinking of right now is like the old um goosebumps choose your own adventure stories where you'd like read the bottom right corner of the page and it would tell you like to do this go to page x to do this go to page y and you'd leave like your pinky finger there at the branching point and you'd read ahead and then you'd be like all right i want to go back and make the other choice you're basically saying you don't have your pinky finger. You can't go back. You have to start from the beginning. Is that a really dumb comparison? I see where you got the comparison, but it's not exactly accurate. Because All right. <laughs> with, <laughs> Damn it. Because with Goosebumps, the problem is, is that the alternate routes are just bad endings. And Goosebumps. That's true. In this one, the alternate routes are literally just different parts of the same linear narrative which means that it doesn't really make any sense why you would be pushed back into rereading stuff when well you're just going to be reading it in a linear way anyways and it's not even like if you it's just i'm not a big fan of it like um i do think when i was talking with colin he said that he likes it because it forces you to um get closer to each character before you read their section of the story. And I can kind of get it, but I feel like there must have been a way that could have been, that could have uh, had yeah, that. Yeah, it could have been implemented differently. So yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say much about Dash because it's very different and the way you progress in it, it's very different. And it's also more of a traditional visual novel where like all the different routes in Dash are non-canon except for one. But um Again, because Dash kind of expects you to have read the rest of the series, which is uh, a bit of a conundrum. Well, uh, not much to say there. I will, Well, one thing I will say is I wasn't exactly sure why Spike Chunsoft didn't just split the, um, the two games normally for the West, which I guess they've done for like digital copies and whatnot, but if you're buying a physical copy of this, it's the dual pack for 60 bucks. Um, but then I thought about it, and the amount of people that would want to read Dash is so small that they probably get more people buying, well, they'll probably get more people buying the physical copy for the dual pack than if they had separated the two games, like, for physical copies or stuff like that, just because 
the people that are buying Dash are definitely going to be buying Elite, but there's people that might not have bought just Elite if it didn't have that extra pack in or something. So, I don't know. But yeah, good VN. Um, gave it an 8. Uh, Dash, I uh, don't know what I'm going to give that yet, but it's also pretty good. Um, look forward to that review going up sometime this week. And, uh, yeah. Ironically enough, these weren't the main thing I played this week, but I'm back in Embargo Hell again. So, <laughs> so we'll have to ask you about that next week. But I no, think this actually kind of was... Um, probably two weeks from now. Oh, I see. Uh... This has actually kind of been really helpful for me because obviously I see a lot of people talking about these games, but I don't, I never really had them like linked together in a good way. Like, what's Robotics Notes? What's Steins Gate? What's Chaos Child? But now you've kind of helped explain a little bit of that to me. So now I kind of have a better understanding of how they all fit together. But yeah, so we have a review up for the first part of, the, of this dual pack, Robotics Notes. And then, as James said, he's working on the Dash specific review going up soonish, later at some yeah. point. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we also have a couple of reviews up that uh, George has put up. Uh, I'll get one of them kind of out of the way. We already talked kind of at length about Hades last week. And you did put up a very glowing review for that game. I don't know if you wanted to, glowing, to, to yeah. talk about it at all. Uh, I feel like I said most of it last week anyway. But for those who might not have been there, like Adam, you didn't hear. But uh, it is a fantastic mix of narrative and roguelike gameplay uh i i couldn't recommend it enough it nearly completely passed me by until everyone on twitter was talking about it and then i gave it a go and it's like arguably my game of the year now uh it's so so good i feel like i feel like even saying that it's just really underselling it like it is just i haven't played anything like it that does what it does and i think the best way to, to sum up how much I like it is that I have been playing that maybe 10 times as much as I've played Splunky 2, which is a game I thought would be the second coming to Christ. So, you poor know, Splunky I, 2. Yeah, for Splunky 2, like, I, I just can't get back into it. Um, I did do some thinking about that recently, uh, like thinking out of guilt, like, why, why do I like this game so much more? Uh, I think it's the way that they handle progression. So, in Hades, every time you progress, I won't talk about this for too long because I could I could do another hour on Hades, but I won't. Um, whenever you progress in Hades, every single run builds up something. Whether it's narrative, so oh cool, like I got this conversation with someone, so that was definitely that was worth it. Or you're making progress by slowly upgrading Zagreus, or you're just even like even at the bare minimum of getting knowledge of a certain how a certain enemy works or how a certain boss works you're always earning something whereas in splunky 2 there is absolutely nothing like that besides knowledge uh and that's originally what i loved about the first one i loved gaining all that knowledge and knowing okay if i if i chuck this down then the spike tracks going to go off and then i can do that and get away but i feel like with splunky 2 it's almost it chucks so much new at you while still keeping all the old stuff that was difficult, you've got so much to learn that sometimes it's sometimes it's a bit much. Um, and usually that'd be fine. Like Usually I'd be like, I'm totally up for the challenge. But then I see something like Hades, which is doing something very similar, but is offering like sort of, sort of like a, it's offering a ladder down. It's saying, okay, like we'll give you a bit more help. We'll, we'll help you along with this. Um, so maybe that explains it. Or maybe I'm just enjoying something oh, a bit different. Uh, uh, 
it makes sense what you're saying. It seems like um, Hades very smartly says, this is basically, I haven't played the game, but this, how you're describing it makes it seem like they're like making a very smart, clever implementation of rogue light sentiments for they're like, we know that repeating the run can be in a lot of ways tedious, even though it can be rewarding in games like Swanky to have gained knowledge, gained know-how, learn techniques, learn tricks or whatever. Hades is like, we'll give you that, but we'll also give you like some really compelling characters. We'll give you some stories. We'll give you like a boost so that you can kind of get back to where you were. It seems like they just really kind of make it enticing to say, oh no, I died, but I'm going to keep going because I have all this now coming at me because I'm still progressing through the game. Exactly. And I think before before Hades, I would have looked at the genre. I would have thought games like Binding of Isaac uh, and obviously Splunky, and I would have gone, yeah, I, I don't need a narrative. Like I'm here to press X as soon as I die to restart and then see what changes and maybe I'll win this time. But like from seeing how well it can work with Hades, I'm like, maybe maybe more games should be trying to have like a ongoing narrative. Like roguelikes, I mean. Uh, Binding of Isaac sort of does, but like vaguely. It's not as like forward about it as Hades is. But yeah, uh, my review's up on the site. Um, I recommend it so, so much. I feel like that isn't a hot take. I feel like everyone's saying how amazing it is, but... Like, yeah, and so, in some ways, I feel like awesome. a little bit late to the party where our review did not go up uh, super quickly because we I don't think we were originally planning on covering it. Not <laughs> because of like, oh, we shouldn't, but it was just kind of like, it's not really an RPG sort of thing. Is it really? A th but then you're just like, man, I love this game a lot. I want to write about it. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah. it's it kind of has joined the chorus of a lot of good word of mouth for the game. So it's, we, I guess, as a website, you've written for us that we're, we are, in general, in agreement. Yes, completely. Um, and I hope the three of you play it. I don't, I don't think the three of you have played it at all. I know Josh had played a bit, but you you guys should get on it. It is so good. Um, and in between that and the other game that I had been playing, which was under embargo up until this week, and there's a review up on the site as well, uh, is Prinny 1.2 Exploded and Reloaded. And oh my god, like I don't think I've played a game this this easy in months. Like this, Wait, what? <laughs> crash. They're all so difficult. Like I I've died. The funny thing is, is that, like, I remember when they first came out on the PSP that NIS America really marketed these as being incredibly difficult, so... They, they really are. <laughs> like, I remember we were talking about it, this was back when Grounded released, so, like, try and cast your mind back to that distant time, I think maybe... July. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> July. <Summer. laughs> um, but I remember when that came out, we were talking about how that just got announced, um... Or maybe not. No, we were talking about Disgaea uh, for whatever reason. And then I said, oh, there's pretty games. Like, I remember being young and looking at them being like, cool. And it makes me laugh so much now, knowing that as a 21 year old, I can <laughs> I could barely get through them. Like I completed them, but it like completely wipes me out. And just imagining that me as a kid looking at those games like, oh, yeah, funny penguins exploding saying, dude, like I would never have been able to play this game. I would have got like I wouldn't even be able to beat one level. It, it, they're that difficult. <laughs> um. But they're really good. Uh, again, maybe not a super hot take because this is just a re-release, um, and arguably not even an amazing one. Like I would argue that it's kind of bare bones. Um, 
so people have formed their opinions on these games and i again join the chorus of it's really good really difficult but really good um and i think i was most surprised that as seeing like all those videos years and years ago of of specifically the sort of humor that was in these games i hadn't really like i didn't really know what the disgaea charm was and i feel like i've got kind of a a grip on that now it's like quite dry and genuinely funny like i didn't know if i'd jump in and be like okay yeah i see why young me wanted to play these games because it's just really stupid and dumb and loud but like it it is actually like genuinely really still quite funny um and i think i might actually i i've i've just started disgaea 4 and i don't know if i'll enjoy that as much because this is pretty 1.2 they're both platformers which is more what enticed me but i feel like if i enjoy the characters enough i might be able to make my way through them and honestly like well, then, i love these printies they're, they're just they're just the best like i see why people are well they did announce like we did talk in the last couple of weeks about uh, the new disgaea 6 you know footage which it's not like a rebooting point but they've got like a different art style and things like that so that might be a, a good time to jump in if you want to see what those are about i'm yeah. kind of speaking out of my ass because i haven't played those but like if I were to play a Disgaea game, I'd probably just wait for six. Just yeah. I, the thing is, I mean, go ahead. It's such a. I, I've talked about this before, but I am awful with turn-based stuff. Like I, I just, I can't, I can't hack it at all. Um, so jumping into Disgaea Four, which I've now played like half an hour of, I'm already starting to feel like, oh god, like <laughs> I've been way too deep. This is not uh, going to be as easy as I thought. I think I'd almost rather take the sort of like blisters on my thumbs from these two platformers than just feeling like an idiot over the normal games. <laughs> but we'll see how that goes. Um, but Prinny 1.2, really, really fun. Uh, prepare to die a lot. Uh, dude. Yeah, dude. Yeah, die a lot, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a little bit more of like an, an understated release. It's a re-release. It's kind of a, a, a very clearly just like a spin-off for fun game, but it's kind of cool that you're able to kind of cover that alongside Hades, which is kind of like this big, you know, meaty game that you really, really want to like praise from the rooftops. So kind of just a cool breath coverage that we've got on the site with the, the VN review, printing review and the Hades review. And I guess here's my attempt or chance to shout out that I also did review wasteland three, which is up on the site. Uh, so that's four reviews like within the last week. So lots of stuff to read if you're interested in that sort of stuff. Um, I've already talked about Wasteland, similar to how you've already talked about Hades. So I just kind of formalized my, you know, my opinion, my my takeaway, and just put it in written form up on the website. Uh, we also did do a a casual mode video on Wasteland up on our YouTube channel. It's a very weird game, but it has a kind of a different sort of tone that makes it almost inherently interesting. Where it's not quite, and I've played, you know, post-apocalyptic games like Fallout, or I guess you consider like Nier Automata even. I've played games with that sort of setting, but this game still feels different from all of the rest in, in a lot of ways that are really hard to describe. So um, I'm glad I played it. It's, it's in a much better place now than it was a month ago when it launched. So go ahead and give that a read. I think it's kind of one of the more, uh, one of the more unique, distinctive experiences from this year. So I, I wouldn't say like it's an amazing. Like I probably would never go through and replay it, but it's it's something quite different. So 
there. I rounded out the uh, the review shout out roundup for the website. And we've got kind of all the bases covered in terms of types of games that we cover on the site. So that's kind of inherently cool. Um, while I'm talking, I guess the only other game that I've really played is that I've kind of been keeping on top of um, Fantasy Star Online 2. So I talk about this a little bit when it, I think, went into episode four in like early August. And then in September, they in late September, early October, they went into episode five. So that's five out of, I believe, six from the Japanese uh, version of the game. So they're really kind of going at like a lightning pace so that it really honestly feels a bit unnatural where it's like, remember all those new tiers of gear and items that you got a month and a half ago? Well, they're outdated now. <laughs> so uh, it's been a, it's been a bit of like of a, of a grind, honestly, but I think almost artificially so in terms of the pacing. So it's been a bit frustrating, actually, where it's like, well, why? Why kind of spend a lot of time baking into all the stuff that they added in episode six or in episode five when episode six is, as far as I know, is slated to come out before the end of the year. So they basically cram. Go ahead. I mean, that's a valid concern, especially for people playing in the West. But you got to give them some slack in the sense that they're desperately trying to catch up with like seven years worth of content in the span of less than a year yeah yeah i'm not saying it's like the intent was to be frustrating but i think that's just kind of a symptom of the goal to get to that point where they're like okay japan had eight years to work their way through this at a very metered pace we're now on the global release we're we're starting in march and ending in december so have fun uh it's been nice to always have so much new to do because as someone who's played you know guild wars or monster hunter you know games that are updated kind of at a it's it seems like a, a general pace of update is every three months or every two months uh and to have something that's like literally every other weekend there's something new to do is kind of cool in some ways so it, it has been a pretty distinct experience in that way um it is also kind of cool to see the improvements from you know, basic stuff like cutscene and maybe uh, like a, a engine tweaks that, that have been implemented in terms of like how they present characters or dialogue scenes you know you can tell when something was created in 2012 and then something else that i'm playing only a few months later was created in 2017 where you can kind of see the ramp of the quality of the game improving which is something that is almost imperceptive like when I when I play something like Guild Wars and you go back and you play stuff that which also released, I believe, in 2012. And it's it's a much it's it's almost like a boiled frog where it's you don't realize the how the quality of the game just technically is improving over the years, but you can see it easily over the course of like eight months. So that has been something that's kind of been it's it's kind of a unique experience just independent of the game itself, just in terms of supporting a game like this. I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but it's been really kind of cool. I guess I, I, you would probably have the same experience, and James is going to bother me about this, if I played through like Final Fantasy XIV in the span <laughs> of a few months, and I compared you know, A Realm Reborn stuff to Shadowbringer stuff, like if I got through it in just a few months. But Remember, Brian, every kind of, trial goes through Heaven's Word now. <laughs> you have no excuse not to at least give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I don't like I'm I'm planning on keeping up with it through episode six just because I'm kind of at that like uh, sunk cost thing where it's like, well, I've, I've made it this far. 
Um, but then I, I will probably put on the brakes and be like, okay, I've I've experienced the game as it was and is, but now I'm ready for um, New Genesis. The one thing that I will say is uh, something that it took Fantasy, Fantasy Star Online 2, the first like three and a half episodes are very spammy. It's a lot of easy content, a lot of like <clears throat> boards of mobs that you just like melt down and you just kind of grind out this uninteresting stuff for gear and items and drops. And it wasn't until like late episode four where it really starts to up the challenge to a point where you actually have to think about what gear you're bringing, what role you're playing, you know, what items you should have, what, you know, how you prepare for a certain fight. And that has been my highlight of episode five so far. So this week they added a, what's called an urgent quest called the Crimson Fellworm. And the Crimson Fellworm is kind of like a world boss that falls into the vein of what I just described, where you go in with 11 other people and you just kind of do damage, don't die, and, and you get a reward at the end. Not that bad. And there is where I think the game really starts to shine, where it's like, okay, do I have a texture providing buffs? Do we have a healer? Do we have a ranged DPS? Do we have a melee DPS? It's not like the roles are clearly defined in the way like they are in uh, more, more traditional like MMO-type games, but it starts to lean that way a little bit. And I actually kind of feel like, okay, I normally play as a force, so I'm a, I'm a ranged DPS spellcaster. But I can also provide buffs. I can also heal. I can. I have utility in these ways. Do we have a hero character, which is a class that they added, to like damage the scales on this dragon and provide a weak point, or like is there a gunner? I believe it's the gunner that can like put a debuff on any specific part of the of the dragon's like head or claw or joint to make it take more damage. And it, it finally actually starts to feel like I know this is kind of sound like really kind of snobby, but it actually starts to feel like a game. Where it's like, oh, this I can actually sort of see the cog spinning rather than just a messy blur of numbers <laughs> that the game was up until like episode four-ish. And they've also introduced like some solo challenging content, some other four-man content. And long story short, I hope that's kind of more what New Genesis is like from the outset. Because now that they've kind of established, we they know how to design this, they know how to make it actually matter what you're doing instead of just kind of being like this roller coaster that you just sit in. So playing through episode five has made me more excited for New Genesis because I see not only how the game itself has improved like technically, but how their kind of know-how in terms of designing interesting content has also improved. So that's my takeaway from that's my that's my monthly update for Fantasy Star Online 2. I feel bad now. <laughs> I, I need to get back to PSO2, but it's like, I, I got so much other crap to play. It's like, Well, you also talked about Monster Hunter uh, last week or the week before, and I, I think I'm also mostly caught up on Monster Hunter. I finally beat Fatalis after like three days of dying. What sucked was that... Um, what did you do with a group? I tried it solo. I got to the last phase, and he has more health than you think in that last phase where the Triumph oh, yeah. music starts playing. Um, Basically, uh, when he gets to the third phase, which is the one after you put up the barrier, he's at 50% HP. Well, I meant the um, after the Dragonator phase. I, I don't know if I say that the Dragonator phase starts at around 35% HP, because that's the trigger for him to do his third uh, Nova or like Flame Breath attack. And after that is when you get the prompt that says that the Dragonator will spawn in about 
like a minute or so. So yeah, so the like I actually got to that final phase pretty fast. Like on my third try, I got to there and I'm like, oh man, I have the triumphant music that James talked about. I'm gonna do it. And then I timed out. Like, damn it, I need to do the fat the first couple phases quicker. And then I did it again and I was more reckless. I died more often, but I and I got to that dragonator phase with more time on the clock. And I'm like, yes, this is the time. And then uh I was more reckless and died. <laughs> and then as typical with I think if anyone's ever progressed through like a raid in a multiplayer MMO or something like that. At that point is when you start tilting, where you get like that near kill, and then you suddenly start playing worse. I'm like, I was so close. Why can't I put it together? And then, and then you just have to sleep on it a couple of days. And then you come back, and it just feels easier. I, I, I'm sure everyone knows what I'm, what sort of experience I'm explaining. But I, I went back on that third day, and I think um, my second try on that third day, I was able to get it. Uh, but anyways, what I was getting at is that I'm actually kind of glad in some way where i'm like all right monster hunter which is taking up 750 hours of my life i am nearing there's a light at the end of that tunnel i can now maybe squeeze in other games where i would normally slot monster hunter world time <laughs> watch it watch that other game end up being monster hunter rise <laughs> but but yeah it's i it's it's been a really good exp- it's been it's been fun to be a monster hunter fan coming into the series on world it's been a really cool two two-ish years so overall, what did you think of the fight itself? Because I know we talked about it last week, but I got to hear what you thought about it since it is like the penultimate fight for the entire game. So, um, Because of how much I struggled with it, I think I didn't enjoy it as much as if I had been more effective, even though independent of my performance, I think it is a more climactic fight. Uh, near the end of base Monster Hunter, you fight, I think it's an arc-tempered Nergigante. Yeah. And it's the sort of fight where when you clear it, it plays another version. I don't know if it's just the Monster Hunter World main theme, but it's another very triumphant track. Uh, and that one is when you, when you beat that fight, it plays the music and then it actually says something like, we will see you in Iceborne. Like it says like, you know, it, it knows it's like the climactic fight of a base game. And it's it's just it's just another fight in the Elder's Recess. It's probably do, doesn't have as much purely going for it. It's just another Nergigante fight. But just, I beat it on my first try on my last health with like a sliver of my temporal mantle remaining, and like I killed it, you know, just in the nick of when I was about to die. So Monster Hunter World in general has been really good for that sort of emergent storytelling where everyone has like their one close call or their one. I can't believe that worked out moment independent of whatever story or mo- that this, that the game itself is trying to tell you. So I think in that way, that Nervigante fight is kind of, even though it's on its own, like, I, I don't know if I'm selling it that well, not that climactic of a fight, but, but just because I had that personal experience with it, it was more memorable. Um, but I have, I guess I have a lot of those over the years, the two years of Monster Hunter World. And so that's kind of why I've enjoyed it so much. But yeah, I'm looking forward to Rise. Uh, I'm looking forward to having maybe a little bit more "quote unquote" like gaming free time. <laughs> so I know it's kind of a weird mix of emotions, but oh, there that you go. Reminds me though that I need to add this to the document. There was a bunch of uh, Monster Hunter Rise information that just uh, came out this week too. You'll have to speak to, to that once we get there because I haven't really been keeping on top of that past the uh, original announcement. 
So Adam, um, I know you've been busy with some real life stuff, but did you have anything else you wanted to add, uh, add at the end of this section? Or not really? I don't play service games. <laughs> well, I meant like just other games you played. Like, like <laughs> George wasn't talking about service games. Um, I just, so I've been moving. And so I haven't been ha had a chance to play a lot. But I spent a little bit of time playing Fae Tactics. And I like it a lot. It's, how do I put this? It's, an, it's a strategy RPG that is not a Final Fantasy Tactics clone. And it actually does its own thing, and it does it pretty well. Like it's really, I've I've always like throughout my years at RPG site, I've always kind of reached out to try to like um, play all these different strategy RPGs, whether they're indie or Japanese or what have you. And so many of them try to be just like a class-based Final Fantasy Tactics clone or something like that. And um, others, you know, I feel like there's more misses than hits. But Fate Tactics is a hit. Like it, uh, and you've already talked about it before, and you've reviewed it. So I won't go into the details. But the way it incorporates, like you have your three leader characters and your three Fae summons and your spell cards, and how the element system comes into play, it's very unique. That no other strategy RPG is like that. There are no classes um, or anything like that, and a lot of your success in the game comes down to like actual strategy, both both like preparation in terms of what you do before the fight in terms of setting up your characters weapons their elements their skills which summons you're going to bring which spells you're going to bring and then also execution in the fight so like you know positioning and timing of your attacks and getting your combos off and things like that and it's so it's it 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 is a very it puts a lot of strategy in strategy rpg so i i'm really pleased by it it's got a the the storyline stuff is is solid. I think it's a little bit unpolished in ways, but it's interesting enough um, to kind of work as a vehicle for the gameplay, and I've I've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, and obviously I'm the one that wrote the original review for it, so I kind of agree with you. And it is kind of cool to see a strategy RPG try something different, like incredibly different, rather than just like it's Final Fantasy Tactics with this one tweak or this two tweaks or whatever. Instead, it's just like, eh, the only thing it really has similar is that it takes place on a grid. Like, that's really kind of the only similarity, other than, like, really basic stuff, like people have HP or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, okay. It's cool to have someone else that has played through the game uh, on the site and actually somewhat agree with me rather than just be like, yeah, I played this, but I thought it was terrible. <laughs> All right, so let's see. We've already talked about the several reviews that we put up on the site. We also had a lot of other features kind of go up on the site over the last week. So uh, Kyle Campbell, who has been uh, on the podcast a couple times, kind of a RPG site semi-alum, has come back to do a couple of features for us uh, with regards to Final Fantasy. Or sorry, one, I misspoke. He did one Final Fantasy feature and then one Baldur's Gate 3 feature. So two pretty disparate uh, you know, avenues there. So he did an interview with Naoki Yoshida of Final Fantasy XIV fame about 5.3 specifically. Now, 5.3 is one of like the story ending, correct me if I say any of this incorrectly, James, but it's one of the story ending arcs in Shadowbringers, but it was delayed by a month or so due to the COVID complications. So that's what the interview really focused on was uh, specifically getting 5.3 out in this new environment. So 
he has that interview up on the site with some really cool insight. And it was really cool of him to come back and do that for us. So let's see. We've also got a feature about Final Fantasy 16. So this one's actually really cool. I don't know if anyone else here has read through this, but it is a it is a quality read start to finish. So on the French website, Final Fantasy World, one of the authors there, actually the owner of the website, let me make sure I get his name right, Jeremy Kimerick, wrote basically a research piece about director Hiroji Takai, who is helming Final Fantasy 16. Yoshida is the producer, but Takai is the director. And Takai has worked on mostly the Saga series and The Last Remnant, which is something that Adam, I think, thinks highly of. And now here's his first chance. He's been at Square for like 30 years, and he's finally directing a mainline Final Fantasy game. So um, our website uh, owner, Alexander Donaldson, reached out to Final Fantasy World to see if we would be able to have Jeremy translate his site for an, his uh, the article on his site for an English uh, version of this article. And he gladly did it for us. So Jeremy put up a really cool piece on Takai on our website. It is a fun read, and I I can't recommend it enough. It's a it's a really cool deep dive on a kind of an understated Square Enix talent. James, did you want to talk about a little bit of, about what was shown recently, either yesterday or the day before, on this Final Fantasy fourteen live letter about uh, patch five point three five and five point four? Yeah, so um, we actually didn't post anything about ourselves on the site, but a friend of the site, uh, Tony, Tony uh, Garso, did put um, something up on Nova Crystallis, so I'm going to read from there. Um, basically, just re- um, reiterated that patch uh, 5.35 is coming out this Tuesday, which is going to add in the Bajan uh, Southern Front, which is a new like activity that's kind of similar to an existing existing content in the game Eureka, which um, allows you to like instance with up to 72 other players and uh, assist the Bajan resistance in their mission to uh, route the fourth Imperial Legion. So it's um, kind of like an open-ended, more Final Fantasy XI-esque sort of instance to content where it's less uh, linear progression, more um, I don't know the best way to describe it, but something more like that. Also going to be a possible avenue of upgrading Shadowbringers um, Relic weapons, the resistance weapons. Um, so you can do it through there. Um, there's also going to be new Sky Steel tool upgrades, which Sky Steel ugh, Sky Steel tools are kind of like the equivalent of um, gathering and crafting class uh, relic weapons, so they're relic tools in this in this case. Uh, Every housing area is going to have three wards and subdivisions added, so that's a bit more uh, player housing that people have access to. By have access to, I mean it will be up for all of like a minute, probably. <laughs> um, but the actual 5.4 stuff, um, it's going to be titled Futures Rewritten and will release in early December. Uh, as far as they can tell, it's, it's on pace to make it. Um, there's obviously going to be new main scenario quests there's going to be a new dungeon added Matoy's Relict, and it'll be compatible with the trust system. The Sorrow of uh, Werelit uh, will continue, which is the kind of uh, Shadowbringers post-expansion um, trials sub-story. So you're going to have a trial against the Emerald Weapon, as well as an extreme trial, obviously. Um, 
probably the biggest thing about 5.4 is that the final raid tier for the Eden raid series will be added, which means that um, that should um, the end game content for Shadowbringers until they add in like an, another ultimate trial. I think they said they're going to add another one in, but they might not talk about it. I'm not sure if that would be in 5.4 or if it would be 5.5, but um, yeah, so that's going to be added. Um, there's going to be some job adjustments. Uh, we do know that Monk is getting a rework, but they haven't specified anything about that yet. So um, that will probably get detailed a bit more in the next slide letter. Um, Blue Mage is getting an update. So now the level cap is going from level 60 to level 70. So it can do um, Stormblood content unsynced and um, we'll have access to some new spells, I'd assume. Uh, the Save the Queen scenario will be passion 5.45. So that's just more information about what's going to come for for the Bajan and Severn front. So that'll be added there. Um, crafters um, will get some adjustments for less used actions, and uh, new conditions are going to be added for expert crafting recipes. Gatherers, a lot of changes to the collectibles and uh, ethereal reduction systems. Uh, also, there's a brand new spiffy UI for gatherers that looks very different and looks very nice. Uh, the Ishgardian Restoration's final phase will also be in 5.4. Uh, the Unreal Trial, which um, is a system they added in 5.3 where they kind of buffed the stats for like older trials from like Realm Reborn to match up with the uh, level um, that players are at now, will be swapped out. So currently it's um, Shiva's fight. So they haven't said what will replace it. Um, Treasure Hunts will get, I'm not sure if this is a second dungeon or a replacement dungeon is going to be added. I think it's a second dungeon. Um, and the way Treasure Dungeons work is they aren't like regular dungeon activities or kind of their own thing, but they're kind of neat. Uh, ocean Fishing will have new routes and new objectives added. Uh, triple Triads getting revamped. Do My main takeaway right now is like, man, how do people who play this game have time for anything else? I feel for them, having been in that soup and a few other games. Man. Uh, one, yeah, one person I know um, specifically is going to be really happy about the fact that violin instruments will be added to the performance system, which is a uh, sort of thing that you can do if you have a bard unlocked, because it lets you literally, like, musically shitpost in-game. So, that's yeah. fun. And there's, like, this really cool dude um, that I know that um, goes by a little post office or something, and he has, like, I'm not sure if it's six or seven, like, accounts that he literally has, like, a bunch of characters that he just uses, like, some uh, media sa um, samples to play music in-game from different games. He does, like, Neon Falcom stuff. He obviously does a lot of Square Next stuff and the like. So um, them adding violin instruments should be very interesting for uh, what he does, especially since there's some... Uh, uh, classic Neon Falcon songs that really make take advantage of violin, so that'll be nice to yeah. see. A, a lot of uh, Shimomura stuff will, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if this particular person does that, but in general. Yeah. Uh, a new system for fixing multiple material at once, which is actually bigger than it sounds, because that'll be nice for uh, trying to upgrade people's equipment for like raids and whatnot. Uh, the ability to link quests in the chat window. So the base, basically the way it works from what I understand, is if you're in a party with someone and you're trying to go through the main scenario or any sort of quest together, you can you can have it so that when you've uh, 
completed part of the quest, they'll be sent to your party chat so that other people can know or something like that. I'm not 100%. If I'm wrong, somebody in the comments hopefully will respond and let me know I'm, I'm a dum-dum or something like that. Uh, information that, of course, 14 will be playable on PlayStation 5 with some enhancements just based off of the regular uh, backwards compatibility. Though a PlayStation 5 version will be coming later, like a proper one, and it should be free for people that own the PS4 version, I think. Um, I think that's what happened with uh, the PS3 to PS4. So I, w- I wonder if... So there's been speculation about the next... They talked about... I forget the exact wording that they used, but they talked about a new information reveal next February, which people have kind of pegged as an expansion announcement. Yeah, I wonder if that would be like this expansion is PS5 exclusive. I feel like it's too early. I bet it would be like the next one. Yeah, but... one PS5 exclusive. Not yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, a new explorer mode, which lets you uh, visit like dungeons without any monsters in it and like use your mouse and stuff to like capture screenshots and stuff. Just a silly oh, nice. thing. Um, uh, classic blue mode will be added to UI, so it looks more like the original Final Fantasy XIV and Final Fantasy XI UI a bit. And uh, that's basically all of the major stuff, just like a bunch of story stuff. And obviously, you already mentioned that they're, that uh, FanFest has been uh, fully canceled. So the European one that was originally slated for, I think, later this year is now canceled. And um, they're just going to have a virtual event that's going to be 14 hours long in uh, February. So, yeah, lots of information there. Um, If you don't play 14, I'm sure, like, most of this just went entirely over your head. But it it does look quite... Thanks for for calling me out, James. No, I, was I will say though like, that um, what a long you, mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned you uh, mentioned Emerald Weapon earlier, mm-hmm. and this is this is this is kind of beside the point. But I've played like most of the single player Final Fantasy games, and I've beaten all the super bosses. I'm, I know I'm not alone in that; many people have. Uh, but for whatever reason, just the way it's designed, even though I've played the game like three times, Final Fantasy VII's Emerald Weapon is always one of the ones I struggle with the most. Like Izumat, easy. Uh, Dark Aeon's not bad, you know, but. Uh, Ozma, not 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 too hard. But Emerald Weapon, I always feel like I'm like always a one misclick away from dying whenever I fight that boss in Final Fantasy Seven. So that's a little bit of a side of point, but man, what a tough boss. So yeah, um, Final Fantasy uh, 14 5.4 is coming in December, and uh, obviously later, well, Next week is 5.35, which is really only a big deal if you want to try your hand at getting a house. Good luck. Uh, or if you want to try out the uh, new um, side content, which does look like it's going to be fun. Unfortunately, I won't have the time to check it out for at least a couple of weeks, which is a shame. Um, just as an aside, I really, really hope they eventually fix housing in 14 because anyone that's played long enough knows that the way that it's currently implemented is just a complete and utter clusterfuck. Just like real life. Yeah. So (laughs) you know how in most MMOs housing's instance, so you can just buy a house and you're good to go. And then you invite other people to it or whatever. And they just. Yeah. So the way it works in 14 is it's, instance to a degree in the sense that 
you have different housing wards. And there's a limited number of housing wards on each server. And once all of the houses are sold for each housing ward, you cannot buy housing on a server unless you unless when a plot goes up for sale or unless you want to get an apartment. The problem is though is that there's some features like gardening that's only accessible if you have, I believe, I don't think you can do it in apartments, but I'm pretty sure like the main thing is that you can't really garden without a and since there's a limited number of housing on each server, and from my remember, like there's some people that bought a ton of housing like really early on and the development team has been too like I'm just gonna call it chicken shit to actually do something about that because nobody had one house. But it's Yeah, I, I think I understand in general what the idea was is that they wanted to actually have it still feel like a massive multiplayer game in within the housing system. Yeah, they but... wanted it to feel like you had actual neighbors. But the problem is is that there's so much other stuff that you're doing in game that most of the time people aren't going to be in their housing. And if they are, they're probably gonna be inside. They're maybe they're probably not gonna be in their uh, front yard. And since there's so many houses and there's so many different housing boards, just the chance of the person that's your neighbors like logging on and being in front of their house at the same time as you're logged on near front of their your house is super super slim so it's an idea that's cool on paper but it's definitely at the point where it's not worth the trade-offs but of course you'd say that and then there's some people that would be i guess rightfully upset if things got changed because maybe they bought a house because they wanted to show off because they can like decorated and then if somebody goes to that housing ward they see that house and it's like man that person's really interesting with their like decorating and then it's like well if you make things purely like solo instance for like housing people won't see those anymore and it's just a tough situation but they really need to take a stance because as of right now the only people happy are people that already have it Because there's like horse literally stayed literally stayed awake overnight, constantly clicking placards for um, houses that were going up. Because the way it works is that if a house or a plot goes for sale, they make it so that they don't let you know when it goes up for sale. It's just like this will be up for sale sometime. And the reason they say they don't give a date is they don't or a time is that they don't want bots to get the housing. But the problem is, is that if you don't know when specifically it's going to go live, that means that you have to literally dedicate all of your time for who knows how long, just clicking the placard on and on and on to have a chance of getting it. And guess what? That means the only people that are really going to be able to do that, unless you're literally not going to sleep, are bots. It's yeah. just like a sore spot for the community in general, and I really hope they just get like get their head out of their asses and actually do something about it. Sorry, that was a bit. No, like, it's, <laughs> I get it. it. Seems it seems frustrating, especially if you really really like the game and you'd like to have that. Yeah. All right. As we go into the uh, regular news section of this podcast, uh, the first one is kind of back to Final Fantasy 16. So this wasn't an official announcement, really. And we already did talk about how there is still some point this month a plan to um, put up more information on an official website. 
But you know, savvy-eyed you know denizens of the internet have noticed on some Japanese recruitment pages, and this was uh, we're borrowing this information from the folks over at Gamatsu. How on these pages there is a little bit of a mention about the development progress on Final Fantasy 16, where they say we have already completed basic development and scenario production. We are continuing to create large-scale resources and build boss battles while expanding our development tools. Most of our staff is carrying out the work remotely. So. Basically, the idea is, is that this is promising and kind of following up on Yoshida's comments last week or a week, the week before about trying to not have that issue where it's like, we'll see you in 2035. The idea is that sign, it's not confirmed, but it's signs are pointing to the fact that this game might be sooner than we think based on how other Final Fantasy games this last gen have taken, taken a long time to realize themselves. So, um, yeah, just kind of good a good sign all around about the development of the game. It seems like it's been in progress since about when Heaven Sword released, which was at what 2014-ish, 15-ish. So it's a good sign for those that are anticipating 16 coming out in a reasonable time frame. Something that is the opposite story is with Digimon Survive. And this is also like an, not another official announcement. Uh, and this is also from the folks at Gamatsu. So thank you, Sal, for uh, carrying our podcast today. Um, this was not announced to be delayed out of 2020, but I think signs are kind of pointing that way anyways, due to the lack of news updates and you know the dwindling time left remaining in the year. But the producer, Kazumasa Habu, has a Twitter post about the state of the game, which Gamatsu did uh, translate, where he says... Um, I apologize for worrying you about the lack of news. We're currently reviewing the development team structure and refocusing the schedule for Digimon Survive. Uh, I apologize to everyone who's been looking forward to the game, but ask that you wait a while longer. So not an official delay announcement, but kind of all but confirmed. That's good. That that's, yeah. So I think it's kind of what we were expecting. And there's obviously, you know, this year, it's not surprising. It's not unexpected. It's, it is what it is. But yeah, Digimon Survive is looking like it'll be a 2021 title, which... Just as a, like a really quick recap, it looks like this was originally announced at Anime Expo, I think, in summer 2018, so more than two years ago. And it's basically a strategy RPG with a mix of like adventure game, kind of like dialogue, speaking with characters sort of gameplay. Earlier this year, like ending in April, they basically revealed the full cast. There's eight characters. There's usually eight <laughs> Digimon characters in a season or whatever, um, and their partners. But then since then, haven't heard anything. Like, nothing at Anime Expos online, nothing at TGS, so. Yeah, so it was kind of like, hmm, lack of news is concerning. Oh, and that, we're not, not surprising, but looking forward to it. It's a bummer, but there's lots of other games coming out, so it'll be fine. And I guess I'll jump ahead to this other kind of similar story of news is about Indivisible, which came out from Lab Zero Games about a year and two days ago uh, after a very, very long, I think, Indiegogo originally, uh, crowdfunding, yes. long, develop long development cycle, lots of, you know, PAX demos. Uh, I think we have previews for this game from way back in like 2017. Uh, unfortunately, due to the fallout of Lab Zero Games, basically, resolving um all the future updates including characters that 
uh, have been planned and in some cases complete but not implemented uh, are not. It's it's basically the project's dead. It's um, indivisible will not be receiving any more updates. Let me actually get some formal uh, verbiage here. It says. Um, in light of the recent restructuring and dissolution of Lab Zero, 505 Games would like to clarify the thought, the, what this means for the future of Indivisible. At this stage, apart from content that is already in submission, which is basically a patch for the Switch version to include the New Game Plus and the other um, features that have already been included to the other versions, there will unfortunately be no more production on the game. So this includes guest characters, some backer-created characters, and any other additional content. So it's it's just a bummer it's it sucks to see all that hard work not be completed not seeing the project through especially one that had such a long incubation period um i mean it's pretty clear who where fingers should be point to here i forget his name but uh, that head of Absurd. i just might say what it's okay yeah it's i know some people some people one response that I've seen to this news that I never really gel with is like, well, the game was kind of disappointing anyway, so no no big loss. And I'm just kind of like, uh, like that just seems independent of the issue. Like, even if you played Indivisible and think it was awful. There were a ton yeah. of developers that were really passionate about the project that felt uncomfortable because of the stuff that that man was doing. And it, what makes it especially bad is that the whole reason that this is happening right now is that even though, like, the board decided that he should leave the company, he decided that he wasn't going to, to do so, and he basically just fired everyone. So the whole thing with, um, like, with the game no longer getting supported is just a bed that he made for himself. If he actually cared about the game, he would have gone with what the employees and what the board demanded of him. Instead, he was too proud, too arrogant, and unable to accept wrongdoing for the people that he hurt in a position of power to do so. And instead, he tried to take the chicken way out. That's all there needs to be said. And this sucks just to, like, there's there's hundreds of hours of, and this is based on developers chiming in on Twitter. Um, there's, like, this allegedly 100 hours of work, hundreds of hours of work in going into new characters, new animations that will never be implemented, stuff that will never see the light of day. You know, it just sucks to see that all go to waste because of the, you know, hubris and arrogance of, and, you know, overall general shittiness of one person. Even if you think the game didn't hit the expectations you personally set, I just feel like that's beside the point completely. Like, it could not be more beside the point. So it's, it's, and it just sucks that this news is literally like, 367 days after the game launched last year. It's just, what a terrible anniversary. What an awful situation. It just, hope that all those developers find rewarding, you know, successful roles and positions and outlets in other places that will. Pretty much, I'm not sure if it is everyone, but like the vast majority of the people that were at Lab Zero have, uh, made a new developer, I forget the name of it specifically, but they're working directly with Autumn Games on Schoolgirls now. So Schoolgirls will still stick around, it'll still be supported. Uh, it's just Mike Z now has nothing to do with it. It's just unfortunate that because of the situation with Indivisible that the same can't happen there too. One other little note is that um, it, there was an update 
that says they do expect a small number of North American physical versions to be available, but it sounds like it's really going to be kind of a tenuous situation if people were waiting specifically for that, for physical versions of the Switch uh, cartridges. So, and then you'll have to dig in to the update notes for details, but it seems like digital backer awards, you'll have to contact them. Physical ones are being taken over by 505 Games, the publisher. So stuff like statues and collector's editions, I believe, are still safe. But digital ones, you might need to ask around. If you've got like a, a pre-order at a retailer, you might need to contact them. It's just, as usual, it's a messy fallout from a messy situation. So it's it sucks. And this, this has kind of been a game that has been, you know, under our coverage viewpoint for a while. It's not, it's not a huge release, but it's just been something that was just kind of like, Part, I don't know, like, like I said, we've been covering this game for a long time, and just to see, like, oh, it's over now, the end. It's just, just sad. How do we go? How do we go on from there? Maybe that should have been last. One of the more surprising games of this year has been Genshin Impact, which Josh and surprisingly Alex have been really high on in terms of covering all the updates, a bunch of guides for it. And I think they recently announced that they've made like a hundred million. Uh, they've covered development and marketing costs, so it's been really been a hit. And just as a personal anecdote, like I do not work my day job in the gaming space, but I've heard this game mentioned, which is just kind of like a, a like a silly anecdote about like how big a splash this might have made. But anyways, we got a little bit of leaked information, not a lot of concrete details, just basically about um, future updates planned for the game. So. Uh, the main, the main overview is that uh, Imp Genshin Impact Update 1.1 is currently slated for November 11th, so about a month from now. Uh, the details you can find like over at Translated Leaks over on the Reddit page, but um, new, new, two new events, a few new characters. There's a couple of free characters that you'll no longer be able to unlock, so if anyone's really keeping up on this game, you, I guess there's kind of like a finish line you'll have to make sure you uh, have in mind while trying to make your way through the game. Um, and then patch 1.2 is planned for December 23rd, and 1.3 is for February. So it seems like they've already got a regular cadence of updates slated for this game, which is good to see. Uh, back, we're back talking about kind of like that service game. Uh, you know, you're here for life once you're in. I don't think any of the four of us are uh, are big into this, but it'll be curious to see if people like Alex and Josh are still talking about this game as it's continually updated over the next. Uh, over the coming months, I don't know why, but I guess because of Final Fantasy and Monster Hunter. Like James, I'm surprised you haven't jumped on Genshin. Maybe uh, like live service games, or well, just haven't had the time to yet. Plus, um, <laughs> just as an aside, but uh, something happened with the game like a few days ago, where a contributor to the site, Cosma, uh, kind of. Um, Figured out that uh, like the words Taiwan and Hong Kong are like censored in the game chat, so now I'm kind of like not sure. Oh yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good weird. point to bring up. So, uh, like, just just, just clear, just, this is not something that the developers had any choice in a the matter. They are a Chinese company, which means that they are beholden directly to the CCP. That literally means that if the CCP demanded it, they could not. Discomply. They had to go along with it, or they would have lost their business license in China, or worse. So it's like 
it, it's just such a shitty situation though because it's like if you don't want to support this stuff like the erasure of like taiwan and like i don't even know why they're doing this with hong kong because hong kong is like officially part of china like nobody even debates that but just the whole can of worms there but it's just such a shitty situation because you know the developers had no choice in the matter. So right, it's, it's either do that or you're not releasing a game. Yeah. So but it's perfectly like acceptable. If, like, well, I mean, if you don't want to support that, it makes sense because it's just more of China like um, exercising their soft power to normalize things that their regime like says like. It's just like that one like uh, controversy in uh, I forget the name of the uh, the movie, but it was like that one movie where they had the uh, that map of the South, well the South China Sea, quote unquote, which kind of had a whole controversy there because of the way that China tries to say, oh, we own pretty much all of the, like our borders, pretty much can, like encompass all of this ocean even like right up to the beaches of these neighboring countries. It's just, it's a talk that really obviously goes beyond the scope of a video game podcast, but it's something that. As we always do in almost every situation, even though you do kind of take them case by case, like we're not the arbiters of deciding whether you should or shouldn't support something like this. But yeah, it is something to bring up that Taiwan, Hong Kong, and some related terms are censored in impact as it is a Chinese-developed game. So I just do want to stress that no matter what your, cho- what your choice is in regards to the game, don't judge the developers because they literally had no choice. Like, even if you don't want to support the game because in some ways will like support the ccp directly because they're on like the board of directors you'd assume it's just man there's just like no really good answer because it's it's a development team that very clearly put a lot of heart a lot of effort into developing this this clearly a bunch of people agree clearly a lot of a ton of people are really enjoying Genshin impact it's just i don't know no, yeah. it's understandable. Yeah, you, it sucks. Yeah, it sucks because you know you can. This this is my personal opinion. I can't speak for anyone else, but if you are support, if you play the game and support all the developers' effort and heart and time, like that is a hundred percent a reason that I think is valid. But if you decide not to because you don't want to support the CC, CCP censoring of and you know erasure of you know Taiwan, that is also valid. So very well, similar to the Hogwarts legacy stuff. Yep, I was thinking of that too. Uh so I as far as I'm aware, you know, RPG site will will continue to cover this as we've still covered, you know, Hogwarts. But we're not going to shy away from that and pretend that doesn't exist because it does. You know, the games are not developed out of the ether. They are developed by people and people, you know, have these views that they have to be beholden to in order to release these games. So there you go. Another little minor update here, and this is something I can't speak to very well. Um, A couple of Gust games are No Surge, uh, Ode to an Unborn Star, and CL No Surge. I don't know if that actually has a subtitle. Um, 
we'll have basically a remaster releasing next year in Japan for PC, PlayStation 4. Is that it? Let's see. And Steam. And, and Well, here's what I know. Well, I said I said PC, but yeah, Steam, oh, okay. PlayStation 4, and Switch. That's the one I missed. Okay. Go ahead. So I know this is part of like the Arno Surge, like the No Surge. Um, uh, there's an actual like series name for it, like something. There's Artonelico. I might, I might Sur- Surge Concerto. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we just rattled off a bunch of like proper nouns. So I know the main here. problem here is that CL No Surge does not have an official translation. So like these remasters have not been announced for the West, even though there is a Steam release. Like it I, still ha- hasn't been announced for the West, I believe. Yeah, I feel like though that since it is getting Steam release, it's only a matter of time because like the main reason why they didn't translate Seal No Surge is that it was a Vita exclusive at the time and also at the time where it would still be relevant. Like Seal No Surge is like essentially just a visual novel, whereas I understand that Arno Surge does have more combat elements to it, and uh, clearly. Nowadays, visual novels are at least, if not more popular, they're more accepted within the uh, gaming community than they were, like, I don't know if it was, like, four or five years ago, somewhere around there. So, the fact that it's coming to PC gives me, like, hope that it'll be translated, because I, I know a bunch of people that really liked Arno Surge and Seal No Surge, and, like, if you wanted to play Ar- Arno Surge now, like, there is, like, a fan translation, like, YouTube playthrough, like, for, like... That you can watch, but obviously that's very different from playing it yourself. So I hope. So I feel like I feel like I kind of muddied the uh, intro here, but here's the details: the the Surge Concerto series, uh, CL No Surge and R No Surge DX are coming to PlayStation Four, Switch, and PC on January January twenty eighth of next year. Uh, and then, like like Adam mentioned, R No Surge has a translation; CL No Surge does not. We maybe can presume from this news that it might eventually have one. So there you go. Yeah. There are a couple other little short videos or trailers released in the last uh, week. Nothing too surprising here. Maybe we'll just see if there's any interesting comments we want to make on them. Uh, we got a couple more bits of footage from Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity. Uh, introducing some returning characters in their younger renditions. Uh, Robbie and Pura, who are two Sheikah who run the different like ancient tech labs in Breath of the Wild. Uh, there's a short, like literally, like 40 second trailer, kind of introducing them, and they're like, "Here's how they were during, you know, the Hundred Years prequel." So, just kind of a cool introduction of some characters that I think some people really like. Uh, so, obviously, a couple weeks ago they revealed Impa, and now they've revealed Robbie and Pura. So, just kind of, you know, re- returning characters that I'm sure a lot of people are interested in revisiting and seeing again. They also did have a. Oh, go ahead, George. I was just going to say, the the more we see of this game, like, the more it looks like the Warriors game that could convince me. Like, especially compared yeah, to Hyrule, which I was just, like, so hyped for, and then played, and I was like, ah, just a bit slow, and I feel like I'm not doing much most of the time. And then this one, maybe it's just because it's Breath of the Wild, which I adore, but I really want to see how this one goes. Well, like I said last week or the week before, it just really feels like a legit prequel it just happens to be in the wrapper of a Warriors game. Yeah. Where where previous Hyrule Wars is purely fan service. Like this is also fan service. Just the fact that it has these young returning characters is in itself fan service, but in a prequel environment, it kind of just presents itself differently. There has also been some uh footage from Nintendo Treehouse, uh, which I think anyone who follows that 
this is their first like treehouse branded stream in a while. So that's kind of a good sign just to maybe show some return to normalcy, maybe. Uh, anyways, they had about like 20 minutes of footage showing off some gameplay. Uh, so anyone that really wants to dig into the weeds about like how characters play ahead of the game launch, which I've never really been enough to someone that really needs that level of granularity leading up to release. But they showed gameplay of how, how Link plays, how Zelda plays, how um, Impo plays, and I think how Urbosa plays. So that's on the um, Nintendo Treehouse uh, on their YouTube channel. So just some cool updates for uh, Hyrule Warriors, which is going to come out next month. So not too long away. So Nintendo is really has kind of taken the heart this year about like announcing games really pretty damn close to when they're releasing. So not a lot of, you know, it feels like this game has really come out, kind of come out out of nowhere to really be one of the highlights of November. So it's kind of cool to see. We also got a trailer for Yakuza Like a Dragon. Uh, another November release. Uh, this is just this pretty simple trailer called The Quest Begins. Shows off a lot of the uh, mini games, a lot of new English dialogue, uh, a very funny, you know, reason to watch to the end with an English karaoke uh, dub. So I know a lot of people who are into the Yakuza series really aren't planning on playing in English, but it's just cool to see them broaden, you know, their trying to broaden their appeal, I guess. Just, just to see like how big a splash they can make with this game as kind of a semi-reboot of the series. It's a really fun trailer, so we've got it up on the site. For people who have played like seven games already in Japanese, you know, just the English isn't necessarily for you. It's supposed to be for a new audience. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the, when the options are there, I don't really see like how anyone could really take umbrage to that. You know, <laughs> some people will, but I just don't really see how you can do that. I think it sounds fine. It sounds, it sounds a little bit campy. But the trailer is also a little bit campy, so it's I think you know, campy voice acting actually works with Yakuza in the first place. So, especially especially a trailer that's kind of focusing on like silly mini games like kart racing and things like that. Yakuza has always kind of had the when I say always, I've played the first three games, so I'm not an expert, but I've played a bit of it. Um, it's always had this weird dichotomy between like these really silly, goofy, absurd side stories, and then like this really gripping, serious main narrative. And they've always balanced it really well. So it'll be interesting to see like how the English cast does with those two, you know, flavors of presentation. So I don't know if this is a game I'll play on day one, but I am definitely interested in it. So that's that's coming out on November 10th for everything but PS5, as we've already discussed. So kind of a really cool, interesting game coming out in November alongside Hyrule and a certain other RPG. Which has gone gold. I guess that's listed on here. So that's Cyberpunk 2077. It's gone gold. Um, they're having another... Uh, what, what do they call their stream events? Night Night City Wire? Yeah, Night City Wire. Yeah, they're, they're having another one of those in the upcoming week, and we'll cover whatever they uh, go over there. Um, is this where I have to bring up the fact that there's been reporting about Crunch at the studio? Yeah. I know some people. Some people who have, yeah, some, yeah. Some people I get are already rolling their eyes. Um, we kind of discussed about. We kind of discussed this kind of a lot in our staff chat. And again, it's one of those situations where it's just like crunch. Obviously, sucks. But delaying it where people have to crunch more would also suck. There's really nothing we can do about it. It's almost kind of just a natural tendency with these kind of creative projects to try to make it as good as possible in the last moment requiring all that additional time and effort. You can't have hindsight and say, well, like, well, if only the project was managed better, so this wasn't needed. And well, it's like, well, that's 
it's a nice hypothetical, but you can't, you know, can't go back in time now. Um, so yeah, it stinks. It's again just shitty situation. Developers have worked really hard on this. Uh, I will say, just just as a just as an observation, I find it quite interesting. This this is genuinely interesting. This isn't like oh, I'm salty. Interesting, but the the difference this cyberpunk having crunch and say the last of us having crunch uh when the last of us was announced to have crunch everyone's like oh naughty dog suck this game sucks obviously that game has already like gone through the mill that has had its own controversies like all over but then when it was announced that cyberpunk has crunch i saw a lot more people willing to be like yeah you know that's normal this is a big game it's like i i just maybe because i'm a massive fan of the last of us i just genuinely don't like seeing it being shat on as much as it has but it's just it's funny where people's like loyalties will just diverge i think like depending on how much they want something you know is it just i don't know maybe if i'm just salty towards cyberpunk in general a little bit but it's just a bit it's it's people will go to bat for their favorite developers their favorite games um i think the the term is it like process argument is that the term adam likes where you base your feelings not on a sense of principles or a sense of like i believe crunch is inherently bad or inherently good it's more like well i want to support this game so if this game has crunch i'm going to defend it or i don't want to support this game so if this game has crunch i'm not going to defend it yeah generally speaking a process argument is like making making an argument to suit some other position that you have that's not really related to the argument like if you don't like if you don't like Naughty Dog for whatever for some other reason, you might start to argue, "Oh, they're doing crunch, so they're terrible." Even if you don't actually care about crunch, uh, uh, and so on and so forth from there. It's it's one of those things where it's like, what is the solution? Unfortunately, the solution is just to kind of hold your hands together and say, "Please don't crunch." Like we'll understand if it's rough and needs updates, because you can't just say like, "We'll delay it." So that just means they're just going to be crunching for X more weeks. And they probably, and obviously they can if they've gone gold. Um, and you can't just say like, well, go back in time and manage your, manage your project better because, you know, creative projects have so many changes and turns. And you know, anyone who's dealt with any sort of project and any sort of line of work knows how hard it is to manage a handful of people, let alone a studio of hundreds. So there's just, we're kind of powerless here. So again, we can just really hope that, you know, when the game comes out, we support all the hard work that has gone into it. You can still call out the crunch and say, like, we wish we, it didn't have to come to this, but we don't have any power to say, like, you shouldn't have, you know, you should you should have done X, Y, and Z because we don't know the details of development about what caused this in the first place. All that stuff. It's, again, just another very nebulous, soupy situation that we just can't really affect in any major way. So... We're not going to shy away from calling it out, but we're also not going to say like, therefore, you don't deserve our coverage. That's just stupid. That's just, you know, that's just way too self-important. So I just hope, I guess, that if the game comes out and has bugs or rough issues or, you know, things that need to be looked at, that, that people don't go off their, you know, go ballistic. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I always, I'm the sort of person where if a game is buggy and you see this with Baldur's Gate 3 where it's like, you know, the developers didn't intend for that. You know, it's not like they just deliberately handed you a product that you're not going to like. So just another shitty situation. 
Um, I guess I guess if I my one hope is that I feel like with Cyberpunk it's just had this this world of pressure put on it and like I don't know I can't see any way that it can live up to the expectations because I've got people telling me like oh you can do literally anything in this game like like people who I'm personally friends with will be like oh you're gonna get Cyberpunk I'm like, yeah of course we're gonna get Cyberpunk but like like, oh, you can do anything. You can be anyone. You can, you can like go in every building. You can hack whatever you like. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true. Well, <laughs> like, I mean, we've already we've already seen how they've kind of narrowed the scope where it was supposed to have X many life pads or X many um whatever. I forget the I forget the title of character, but there were supposed to be like multiple original role models that you could follow. But then they ended up just narrowing it down to just Johnny Silverhand. But you've you've already seen where they had like this ambition that they've already pared back because they realized oh we bit off more than we could chew and more than we could deliver on. Uh, so you, development shifts like that are probably what contributed to crunch in the first place. And um, one, some, one argument that people make sometimes, it's like, well, as long as they're fairly compensated for the crunch, it's fine. It's, you know, it's not like they're working unpaid. And I, I'm like, I sort of get where that's coming from, but I really don't think that that's true. Just because you say, please put in extra time for us, it'll help your bottom line. It just kind of makes it more sinister. It's like or in some ways, it can, it can feel a little bit more insidious where it's like, well, if you're not crunching, then you're just hurting your own wallet. You're not going to get paid for your overtime. But if you are, you will. So you should. It's just kind of like, uh, I don't know if that really makes it any better. It's just kind of, it's just kind of part of the same argument. I feel, I feel but, that, the, that's the interesting thing. Well, the sad thing, I guess, is that it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. And the reason why there hasn't been a solution found so far is because like, like, who knows if there is a solution? Like, just as it is, I think everyone wants to put full maximum effort into something, especially to see it through to the end. Like crunch is is awful, and people like probably don't want to do it, but they like they're still going to be the people who do, no matter what. Um, well, yeah, unfortunately, I think it's just part of human nature because some people, some percentage of people, are going to legitimately enjoy and feel passionate about. I'm releasing this game on November, whenever I'm going to put in as much time as I can, and then. Like that—that's just human nature. You could argue, like as, um, as well, like from. Sorry to interrupt, but the, no, just randomly, I realized sort of like a connection is. I'm sure when the when the four of us we've all had to review a game. Uh, I know personally, for example, when I was reviewing Crash, that was kind of down to the wire. That was a choice of, okay, I can get this review out a couple of days later, or I can get it out on time, and I can stay up till four in the morning and drink these energy drinks and drive myself mad. I like, I, I chose to do that. I chose to, I hate to say crunch cause then it seems like I'm trying to, you know, but I, I, yeah, chose- some people, some, some people might argue that crunch requires a long duration where it's something that takes place over months or years. Mm. But I do think there are some analogs to the late, late night project finish or the late night review write up. And you, you know, if you're, if you are motivated to write, stay up all night and write that review that's i would think has the same motivation that drive people to work saturdays for six weeks in a row you know it's the same it's the same driving force in a lot of ways so you can kind of see where it stems from so like you kind of said is there a solution well there isn't an easy one the solution really would be just to have a different paradigm for how games release where you might already argue that that's already here, where games release unfinished, patched up, 
but then like if 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 there's really no meaning to a game going gold anymore just what sparked this whole conversation is that cyberpunk 2077 has gone gold it's really it's met all the requirements to release on the digital storefronts and get printed on the discs and all that um even once they pass that threshold they're still going to be constantly working on the game for updates for bug fixes and then eventually for dlc this is so, a bugbear of mine is that i i like these game game has gone gold announcements just because i i guess it, it it's nice to have that final update like i remember when kingdom hearts 3 was announced to have gone gold i was there like oh my god it's actually happening but then the further you get into I, I hate to say the industry but the further you get into talking about games professionally or like as we do on a podcast as we do in our articles the more you realize that saying that it's gone gold like doesn't really mean much at all like it's cyberpunk has gone gold but i guarantee everyone's working on it pretty much just as much as hard as they were before like you know i i guess maybe that's just maybe that's just petty but i no longer see gone gold as news that, that's why we generally don't cover it on the yeah, site you know in a world where things are patched and updated all the time it's you know like that's the 1.0 version sure but it's going to get a 1.1 like right away just just look at marvel's avengers <laughs> Well, or like if, or wasteland, well, it, or pretty much any game these days. <laughs> no. Well, then I think you you bring up Marvel, and that's an interesting parallel conversation where games are so complicated, engines are so robust. Even those of us that haven't developed games, it doesn't take that much insight just to realize how complicated these machines are. That's what they're effectively like digital machines, where it takes so much know-how and energy and time, which relates to the crunch argument to make these things relative to how long it takes to play through them and then whine on Twitter that it's there's not enough content or that it's too short or that's too grindy because you have to like, not artificially, that's too cynical, but you have to have some sort of repeatable content that is, you develop something that you can iterate on that will allow people to play through a certain part of it, like whether it's a dungeon or like Savage Trials or, or certain ways that games can be iterated on to to kind of increase the playtime amount without developing brand new content or assets or animations every time. So the fact that a game as big and ambitious as Cyberpunk comes down to crunch, it's not surprisingly, sadly. Uh, it's not surprising, sadly, is what I meant to say. So uh, we can't we can't really affect it. We can't really tell them not to crunch. And I don't think it it would being punitive and saying like, oh, we're gonna we're now gonna do X, Y, or Z because of you went back on your word. Is just that doesn't that just exacerbates the problem. That doesn't yeah. solve anything. So there's no reason to do that in my mind. But there's also no reason to shy away from the conversation either. I know I've said something similar so many times, but that's how we have to do it, though, isn't it? Like yeah. you, you gotta you gotta be able to be in the middle of it. I think. Sorry, okay. I just have so many ideas on this. Go ahead, George. I love talking about this. Um, but one thing I realized isn't on our uh, document about things that happened this week is a rather a sad tale, especially for me. Uh, having pushed so hard to cover it, but Marvel's Avengers has uh, gone. I think it just went below 1K players on Steam concurrent. Um, yeah. Which doesn't sound like a big deal. Like I, I'm sure. Like I, I personally don't play it at the moment, but just that and how quiet Square Enix have been on the game at the moment makes me think it might, you know, be in a bit of trouble. Um, it's got to be deflating to be like. A developer and you see that and you're trying to make this engaging stuff that really resonates with people and then apparently it hasn't i just can't imagine how frustrating that is 
especially with Cobble right around the corner as well. Like it is literally. Uh, was it? I think it's. I think it's this month that the the first content drops. The um, Kate Bishop DLC stuff. Like right. that's right around the corner. But I guess it's just not enough to keep us keep people's interest. Uh, just just a just sad there because even even when that was approaching release, we were sort of like uh, okay on it, and then when it came out, I was pleasantly surprised. And then now, I guess it might not even have the chance to grow into the game. I think it could be. Yeah, just it, we've seen. Certain games, there's so many you could list, like No Man's Sky or Final Fantasy or even Fallout 76 to some extent, struggle and then kind of make something of themselves. Obviously, some more successfully than others. So it's not like there's a nail in this coffin here, but uh, like I, I always feel like people get pretty dramatic pretty easily. I've always been a little bit more like, wait and see. <laughs> but I, I hope Marvel's Avengers finds a solid... I feel like we've changed topics here, but it's, I think we kind of covered all, uh, what we wanted to on Cyberpunk. We're still planning on covering it. I'm planning on reviewing it, independent of these issues, to what extent that you can. But you know, crunch is crunch, and we're not gonna we're not gonna plug our ears and say la la la. Let's not talk about that. And then for Marvel, um, obviously, I do hope that the updates end up being well received and that they, you know, revitalize the gaming, the population that it has, that it has like this core you know, support this base that allows them to keep developing the game that they've been working so hard at. So, all right. Was there really anything else to cover this week? Man, what a soupy week of discussion. Um, there's the Monster Hunter Rise, like, uh, kind of, it, not huge um, details, but basically, uh, so you haven't played any Monster Hunters besides the uh, world, so you don't, uh, you probably I play, I play. I played 20 minutes of Freedom Unite. Okay, so... <laughs> that the uh, single player and the multiplayer uh, quests and were separated uh, that will be the case again in rise and also any quests that do have cutscenes you can just skip them so that like I feel like it's pretty obvious that the major problem that some people had with world was the really asinine system where you had to watch the cutscenes before you could do multiplayer with someone even if you were on the exact same quests as each other. So um, good to hear that that should be a problem with uh, Rise. To um, try to paint the picture for people who haven't played Monster Hunter World, um, imagine that you and your friend both want to fight, I don't know, Baryoth, and there's a new story quest that introduces him. What you'd have to do is both go into, the cuts, go, both go into that quest independently, watch the cutscene that introduces the monster, and then the game will have a UI pop-up that says, like, you can now call for help. And that basically is telling you, multiplayer is unlocked. And you had to do that for every single introduction to every single monster. And it's like, why is it designed like this? And it's really even more frustrating that eventually later in the game, I think it's the Shara Ishvalda fight, where they actually designed the cutscenes that introduces the monsters, where if you have multiple hunters in the battle, it animates all of them like independently. Like, here's your party of four about to fight this guy. But you still have to watch all the cutscenes independently. It's just like... If there's one weird technical hiccup that Monster Hunter World never did well, it's this weird stuff that you have to work around if you want to play together with a friend. So to tie this back in, it's, it seems very cool that they at least give you a skip option for multiplayer in Rise. They're like, okay, we can't just keep this how it is. We gotta, we gotta tweak this implementation here. So very well, cool to hear. Since the multiplayer section is completely separate, uh, probably won't have story cutscenes in the first place. So any cutscenes. Like uh, monster introductions, I guess. But 
either way, shouldn't be a problem. Should be uh, uh, a return to normalcy for that. They, um, the other things that they said were that um, so they're going to try and uh, add in the system kind of similar to SOS flares where you can just join in progress quests. They don't have anything to talk about yet, but um, they did say that they wanted to have something like that. A very clearly, um, I'm not sure how closely you've been following Rise, but very clearly they're um, trying to design something that's kind of like a bridge between old school Monster Hunter and new and like Monster Hunter World. So you see all these quality of life changes that were in World are basically being brought in, but there's some of the more like esoteric stuff that's directly gameplay related isn't necessarily the same like uh they haven't detailed any further but they have said that the armor skill system is going to be more something like a mix between the old system and the world system whatever the hell that means i don't know but we'll see um i'd imagine that if anything that means that there might be negative skill points attached to armors again that would be my guess because the thing with world is that armor skills were always just positive things that would be incremented on to a to an armor piece and i'm guessing that they're just going to have negative attributes on armor now so you have to consider that what do you mean like something like this piece of armor increases your attack but decreases your stamina something like that um i'm just speaking very generally so there's some armor skills that if you uh in the older games that also had negative versions of those skills, which would have negative impacts on, on those skills. So instead of it buffing a specific thing, it would have a debuff kind of attributed to it. You'd have to find it. You'd actually have to use like decorations to kind of mitigate those issues that... Um, specific armor sets would have. So instead of, for the most part, instead of the um, decorations primarily being used to kind of fill out slot, like, armor skills that you maybe weren't quite able to get onto your set just off of the armor alone, while you did have some of that, also part of it was making it so that you would um, be just above the threshold of the negative armor skills having an impact on you. Because the way that armor skills worked in the previous game is it wasn't like if you have a point in an armor skill, you automatically get something like attributed to your like, uh, you didn't automatically get the skill. It wasn't like one to one. It was there was like thresholds where it was like you needed like 10 skill points in this one armor skill for it to have any impact and vice Mm -hmm. versa. If you you need to have like 10 negative skill points to have any impact where you'd be debuffed. So all it would really take was like one skill point with a level one slot decoration to really get rid of that debuff because it makes it so that you're only minus nine instead of minus 10 and stuff like that. So my guess is, though, again, this is completely a guess. They haven't elaborated any further. And it's just my assumption based off the fact that they said it's going to be like a mix between two systems. I feel like they're probably going to add a negative uh, armor skills again. So if I could ask for one like UI tweak, and I know Monster Hunter World already added like a bunch of quality of life stuff, like damage floaters in general are new to world, right? Yeah. Did I say the right thing? I meant I meant world if I said the wrong thing. But one thing that I always thought was a little bit muddy was how 
weak points, uh, how do I say that? Weak points, uh, critical hits, and then like clutch call broken areas. I'm not sure what you call that. Uh, like injured parts. Like each of them have like slight tweaks to how the damage floaters work. Like enemy weak points turn your number orange. Critical hits have like the slash through it. And then if you if you weaken something using the clutch claw, it has like the orange like arrows pointing inwards. Like there's a bunch of different ways that the numbers can appear that was always kind of soupy. And I, I feel like that could have been clarified up a bit. Uh, but the thing is, is that the damage floaters are kind of new and kind of maybe might argue unnecessary in general. So maybe that's yeah. going too far. If you fully notice this, but actually if you're hitting a monster's weakest point, there's a bit more hit stop to your attack. It's especially noticeable on something like the Greatsword, because um, you, there's just like a split second, like after your like um, hit connects before it fully goes through, and that's just the way of the game telling you, okay, you've hit the weakest point of the monster. And that used to be the only indication, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's the only indication, cool. along with um, I'm not sure if the like visual flare for the damage like the blood or whatnot was also higher. I think it was, but don't quote me on that. But that's another thing. Um, at least from what we've seen, which is admittedly only Japanese gameplay, and I do know that in the past there's been a discrepancy between the blood splashes for fighting a monster in the Western and Japanese versions from the games. It's actually really fascinating, just a little bit of a tangent. Just It's like the small things that sometimes get changed in Monster Hunter like three ultimate, you, uh, for whatever reason, they gave uh, Western players a base 50 defense, whereas in Japan it was a base one defense. So, like early on, especially, it was you were taking a lot less damage because you basically, even with the base armor set, you had something more akin to like middle to closer to the end of low rank just because of the extra defense you got right off the bat. And then there's stuff like um, in Monster Hunter Generations versus Monster Hunter Cross. Uh, it used to be that you um, couldn't fully kill the Kelby in the Western versions, and it's kind of like jumped back and forth between it would just like stun them, and then once you card them, they run away, and then there's like some cases where they just die. It's really uh, kind of weird how that keeps kind of changing. But um, what, what I was going to say is that um, at least in the Japanese version of Rise, um, your attacks are going to showcase more blood, when, when you hit a monster, which is which makes sense because that's something that the Monster Hunter Portable developers, which this is that same team, kind of did a lot with like Portable, Portable Second, Portable Third, that sort of thing. So not sure if that's going to be the same in the West, not sure if it's going to be changed. It's just one of those things that they keep like jumping back and forth about. And obviously if you've played a world, you'll notice that you don't really actually see all that much blood when you attack. Yeah, I, uh, I was actually thinking about that. When you cut off a monster's tail, it almost pops off like a Lego brick, where it's like, oh, there it goes. <laughs> and it's just yeah. like, uh, there really should be a, probably more blood, huh? I guess I really haven't really thought about it that deeply. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, a bunch of little information like that. Um, one thing is that, and kind of another example of how it's like bridging the gap between the old style gameplay and world is that since it is a portable Monster Hunter, they're going to have the event quests act like they did in the previous portable Monster Hunters, where once the quest is released, you download it to your save data, and you'll have access to it whenever. But 
they've also specified that it's not going to be like previous games where the monsters are necessarily already in the code. And they are going to have like title updates that add in new content for a year, much like Monster Hunter World. So that's good. That's good news. That means that um, for people that have gotten used to more monsters being added over time, it's uh, going to continue like that, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I am super excited for Rise. And that pretty much covers it for this week of news. I know it's been kind of a weird roller coaster in terms of announcements and more, you know, more somber discussions and, you know, looking forward to next gen. Plus, I feel like that's kind of where the industry is at the moment. Like, if you want just to hear game details, you can always just go to the, uh, you know, official web pages marketing these things. But we like to talk about who's making them, interviewing developers like we did with uh, Yoshida and, you know, previewing things. And it's, you know, it, these are the, all the sorts of discussions that we'd like to accomplish as a site. So I think it was a lot of good discussion today. So it was kind of cool to bounce off ideas and, you know, disagreements off you three. But we'll see like next week if we can get back into uh, ramp mode into next gen because it's kind of crazy that we're already like a month away from new consoles releasing. So, and then like Demon Souls will probably be like the major game for us. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Kingdom Hearts huh? Melody of Memory, come oh, on. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> yes, Demon Souls and Kingdom Hearts, equally important. <laughs> uh, coming out next month. And then alongside all the other things we announced, like, uh, or talked about, like Yakuza and um, Hyrule so, Warriors. Or coming out later this month. That'll be uh, interesting. What was that? Uh, Trails of Cold Steel 4 also coming out. Oh, yes. Yeah. So for people, people like in in that, you know, I you know I'm 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 one of the people where I've played all the games in the series released in English so far, and nothing's stopping me from playing the fan translation now that it released for the for the games that haven't been officially localized. So that should be on my docket. I recommend playing through Crossbell when you get the chance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, we will. Uh, I guess we'll start tying it up there. Like we've mentioned, we have a ton of reviews and an interview and a preview and a cool freelance article up on the website. Do check it out. We've got the Wasteland 3 video up on the YouTube. Do check it out. Um, you can go to our website at rpgsite.net. You can hit the Discord icon at the top to join our Discord to talk about all these games. Um, you can follow our Twitter our Twitter page at rpgsite. We'll post all these news and um, all the birthdays for all the games that we've been covered, been covering. And then uh, we might have a we might have a video coming up for another casual mode, or we might not. We will have a podcast next week, as we always seemingly do. Uh, but until then, take care, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everyone. Later, folks.